We've been going through the Ten Commandments, and we've already taken a brief look at the first five. The last time, following Father Lord, we briefly considered the incredible fact that God has made man and women joint custodians of an absolutely amazing power. The power of cooperating with him in bringing other men into existence. A power so great that it actually makes men and women godlike, since they have the awesome responsibility of bringing the next generation to life, of helping God himself produce these new immortal beings we call babies. And we took a moment to consider the greatness of this power by reflecting that a career, a bridge, a book, a building, a bank account, all these will pass away. This whole world is grinding slowly to an end, but a baby, a baby is immortal. Civilizations come and grow, fall apart, crumble, blow away in the dust. But a baby has an eternal destiny. A baby will live forever. This universe will end, but that baby will live on. And by considering the incredible godlike quality of this creative power, this power to bring or help bring immortal beings into existence, we can really see how godlike that power is. Then we can see why God surrounded it and protected it with a special virtue, the virtue of purity. And then we can't help seeing that his power is really holy. That's why God has blessed it. He's blessed it with the sacrament of matrimony. And after considering that and thinking about how holy this power is, then we compare that creative power that God has given to married couples to that great sanctifying power He's given to the priests. We saw that the sanctifying power of the priest, when it's used correctly, pours down grace into souls, opens heaven, and God becomes pleased with man. But that sanctifying power doesn't belong to a priest. It's a power on loan from God, and it must be used exactly as God intends it to be used. The priest performs the rituals, as they're written, adding nothing, leaving nothing out. If it's used deliberately and correctly, it's the sin of sacrilege, which calls down death and destruction and casts priests and people headlong into the pit of hell. The attitude of the priest with respect to the sanctifying power, the attitude of the priest at least, that wants to be pleasing to God, is to use this great power in the way God intends it to be used. Obviously, that's really the only common-sense approach to the wonderful sanctifying power of the priesthood. And similarly, we saw why the attitude of the pure heart is to only use the creative power in the way God intends it to be used, because it, too, is a power unknown from God. And so it should never be misused in any way or manipulated to steal the rewards while preventing the birth of those children God wants to bring into the world so that he can later fill heaven with them. We realize that a sin against the great creative power, any act of impurity, is really like a sacrilege because it's betraying something sacred 
It's betraying something holy. It's really taking an act merely for the pleasure. It's betraying God's trust by abusing his blessings. It's cheating by stealing what hasn't been earned. So obviously, holy purity is really the only common sense approach to the great creative power. The pure of heart want to serve God. They aren't going to selflessly use others and trample over babies in their single-minded drive to have a good time. So last time we looked at the beauty and necessity and selflessness of that shining virtue of purity. And we also considered that all too often, most of the serious consequences of sins against that power fall on the babies. Today we'll take a quick look at the consequences of sins which fall upon those who actually commit sins against holy purity, sins of lust. In order to understand this, there's something we better not forget. We're damaged goods. Thanks a lot, Adam. We need to keep that clearly in mind. Because of the fall, our passions are not completely under the rule of right reason. And remember, the $4 word for this rebellion of our passions is concupiscence. Concupiscence, that's the rebellion of our passions against the order of right reason, all our sense appetites. That inclines us towards sin. So we better not forget that if we let our passions get all excited and carry us away, they'll carry us right into sin. But this isn't a new idea, or it shouldn't be, for any of us. We're all familiar with this concept. Suppose a man goes home to see his wife and unexpectedly finds someone else there. Right then and there, he totally flips out and kills the intruder. That's a crime of passion. And everybody knows, in a crime of passion, a man's passions have literally overridden his right reason. And so he's literally not in his right mind when he commits the crime. And we can all see the difference between a crime committed in the heat of passion, a murder like that, a killing, and a cold-blooded murder. In a cold-blooded crime, the murder coolly, calmly, carefully, and dispassionately as possible plans the execution of his victim. So these examples make the point that when we look at the effect that passions have on the actions of fallen men like us, not just crimes, that's only an example, but the effect they have on our actions, we have two possible extremes. On the one extreme, a man can be led away with it by his passions till he's literally out of his mind. Now, on the other extreme, a man acts calmly and coolly, cold-bloodedly, just, and it doesn't have to be a crime, just like when we're doing an arithmetic problem or some geometry proof. That makes it easy for us to understand the effects that sins against purity, sins of lust, have on a man. Because of the violent effect of the passions excited by lust, the mental state of a man under the influence of lust is hovering somewhere near this extreme. The out of his mind, because of his passions, extreme. Okay, that's the effect that that lust has when it inflames the passions. As St. Thomas says, quote, lust increases the force of concupiscence and weakens the strength of the mind. The reason and the will are most grievously disordered by lust. Close quote, St. Thomas. Lust increases the form of concupiscence, it inflames the passions, and it weakens the strength of the mind. 
the reason and will are most grievously disordered by lust. Now with all that as background, that the mental state of a man suffering or under the influence of lust is grievously disordered and somewhere near the out of his mind due to passion extreme. Given that, let's take a few minutes to consider the short-term and long-term effects on a man who sins against purity. The short-term effects. According to St. Thomas, sins of lust give rise to a series of four problems in the reason. Four problems. First is intellectual blindness. The image in that man's imagination gets messed up because of the violent excitement that lust causes in the passions. The raging passions color the image, so to speak, which means that the picture of reality in his imagination is fuzzy and blurred and exaggerated. Now, because the image in the imagination is messed up, the intellect, which relies on the imagination to stay in contact with reality, just isn't getting a clear focus. In fact, it can't. All that's available is a distorted, passion-overridden picture, okay? That's what's going on in the imagination, because the man's inflamed. So this lust is waxed. His whole thought process is out of kilter. And the more perverted or depraved the sins, the more the passions distort the image. And so the more out of whack the mental picture becomes, okay? Now this problem directly affects the decision-making process of this man. Because of his blindness, the whole process of choosing the right means to get something done gets knocked out of kilter as well. Without going through all the details, in a nutshell, here's what happens. When someone is, who's committed a sin of lust is trying to make a practical judgment, in other words, when he's trying to decide, how should I do this? How should I go about this? When he's trying to decide what's the best way to get this done, he's got some real problems. Why? Because the unruly passions have distorted his imagination. Now he's got that mental blindness. That means that even though intellectually he may have a very clear understanding of how a problem ought to be solved, he can't clearly see how to solve this particular problem because it's precisely because he can't get the particulars in with his imagination going all over the place. He may understand the principles, he just can't completely put them into practice. We'll follow St. Thomas very closely to see how this works, and then we'll go back and give an example so it's not too abstract. In the process of making a practical judgment, a judgment of how to do something, the first step is to consider, what are my options? What are the different ways I could get this done? But in this case, because of his mental blindness, the lustful man is not in complete contact with reality. Since he's not in complete contact with reality, since he has this warped, passion-overridden picture, he doesn't have the ability to carefully judge all the circumstances. And so he makes rash decisions. He seizes on a possible solution without carefully considering the options. This is then compounded by the next step. He has thoughtlessness. That's an inability to carefully consider and compare to determine whether this particular solution he selected is the best one. Why? Because now he's got a compounding of mental blindness and rashness, and those interfere with his ability to compare the different options. Then, to top that all off, he's troubled by inconstancy. He can't stick to his decision. He can't decisively command something to be done, even when he knows clearly that it's the right thing to do. 
since he's such a slave to his passions. Since he's out here near that extreme, his passions are dragging him around. He's not completely out of his mind, but he's right at that level where his passions are overriding him and dragging him around, even though he knows he's, he's somewhat reluctantly getting dragged around by him. St. Thomas points out that lust causes a man to be carried away by his passions, and this causes him to be hindered from doing what is reason ordered to be done. Let's take an example to see how this works. We'll consider the previous occupant of the White House. Now, on second thought, since this is a Catholic church, we won't. To see how this works, suppose a man suffering from mental blindness caused by lust realizes that he just has to break up with a particular girl. He makes a rash decision. He seizes on a possible solution without carefully considering all his options. He says, I'll just go over to her place tonight, and then I'll tell her it's over. He doesn't really even consider any other options. There's the rashness. Then his mental blindness and this rashness prevent him from really taking stock of the situation and saying, if I really want to break up with her, is going over to her place the best way to get this job done? You know, which is a no-brainer if you're not under the influence. So there's the problem of thoughtlessness. He just thoughtlessly goes along with the first thing that came to his mind. But he drives over there, bound and determined to break up with her. He walks in and he tells her, it's over, baby. And then what does she do? Naturally, she starts crying. Sure enough, his inability to stick to decision kicks in. She's crying. He feels terrible. His resolution flies out the window. He rushes over to comfort her. And end of story. So there are four levels of darkness inflicted on the intellect by sins of lust. First, mental blindness. Imagination is carried away by the passions. Second, rashness and judgment. Because a man blinded by lust can't clearly see what's appropriate in this particular situation. Third, thoughtlessness. Because this man's blindness and rashness keep him from carefully considering and choosing the best of his options. And fourth, inconstancy. Because this man is so carried away by his passions, he's actually hindered from doing what his reason tells him ought to be done. So much for the damage caused to reason by the sins of lust, what about the damage to the will? There are four problems here. In the first place, because of the disordered state of a lustful man, the basic setting for his will is self-love. Why? Because he has a disordered desire for sinful pleasures, and he longs to please himself. The second problem from the will is the natural state resulting from this state of self-love. It's hatred of God. A man who suffers from lust for any period of time and is unwilling to separate himself from this sin is in love with his pleasure in himself, so naturally he begins to hate God. Why? Because God absolutely forbids the pleasure this man so passionately desires. Now there's a variation on this theme. You can make up the God that doesn't exist who approves of these pleasures. That's another way of getting out of it, but it's the same thing. You hate the real God, so you make up a God that, that laughs about whatever the lustful sins are. Now, besides self-love and hatred of God, it's also easy to see why the man's will is set towards his third problem with lust. It's love of this world. Why? Because he longs to gratify his passions. He longs and loves the pleasures of this world. The final and natural problem in the will of the lustful man is despair of the future life. He despairs for his salvation. Why? Because a man in love with carnal pleasures realizes, at least at some level, 
that spiritual growth requires denying himself and separating himself from sins of lust. This is why it's not uncommon to hear people enslaved by sins of lust utter horrifying remarks like, well, I'll just go down to hell because that's where all my friends will be. Well, God forbid, his worldly friends may all indeed end up down there, God forbid, but there sure isn't any comfort or companionship or friendship down there. So the four problems of the will of lustful men are self-love, hatred of God, love of this world, and despair of the future life. Now we've taken a quick look at the short-term problems that sins against purity cause the individual sinner. Let's take a quick look at the long-term problems, the long-term effects. St. Thomas says, quote, There's no sin in which the devil takes so much delight as in impurity, because the flesh is strongly inclined towards that vice, and he that falls into it can be rescued from it only with difficulty. Close quote, St. Thomas. Because the flesh is strongly inclined to that vice, he that falls into it can only be rescued with difficulty. In other words, over the long term, sins against purity place the sinner into bondage. There's a simple rule. The more repeated these sins and the more perverted these sins, the more terrible the bondage. Why? Because the more these sins are repeated and the more perverted they are, the more passions are inflamed and the more they escape the rule of reason. In fact, to the very degree that they've been repeatedly inflamed and perverted, to that very degree, it's all the more difficult to get them back under control, which is just another way of saying the more tightly they hold that sinner in slavery. More repeated, more perverted, more enslaved. Once we understand that these sins cause problems like mental blindness, self-love, hatred of God, love of this world, despair of the future life, and bondage. Once we realize that because of the violent effect of the passions excited by lust, the mental state of the man suffering from lust is hovering somewhere near the out of his mind due to passion extreme. Once we consider all that, then it's really easy to understand why people react so violently when they hear the actual, honest-to-God truth teaching of the Holy Catholic Church about purity. Their passions are so inflamed, and God's teaching is so threatening to the pleasures that they're really living for, that they're at the point where they can scarcely help themselves. They can scarcely help themselves. How we need to pray, how desperately we need to pray, and fast and sacrifice for these people so that they will receive the grace, the miracles of grace they so desperately need to deny themselves in order to escape this terrible dehumanizing bondage. We need to pray. We need to pray especially because of the final and by far the most serious sin resulting from sins against purity. St. Alphonsus, quote, Sins against purity are the sins which fill hell with souls. In other vices, the devil fishes with the hook. In this, he fishes with the net. So that by impurity he gains more for hell than by all other sins. Indeed, I do not hesitate to assert that all those who are damned 
are damned on account of this one vice of impurity, or at least not without it. Close quote, St. Alphonsus, Bishop and Doctor of the Church. The final and most serious problem resulting from sin's impurity is eternal damnation. We need to pray. As Our Lady of Fatima said in August 1917, pray, pray very much and make sacrifices for sinners. For many souls go to hell, for there are none to sacrifice for themselves and to pray for them. We need to pray. Let's review. We've taken a quick look at the short-term and long-term consequences of sins against purity which fall upon the man who actually commits those sins. The short-term, we've seen that these sins inflame the passions, that there are four levels of darkness inflicted on his intellect because of imagination, mental blindness, because his imagination is carried away by his passions, rashness in judgment, because a man afflicted by such blindness can't make a clear assessment of what's appropriate in a particular situation, Thoughtlessness, because this man's blindness and rashness keep him from carefully considering and choosing the best of his options. And inconstancy, because this man is so carried away by his passions, he's actually hindered from doing what his reason tells him ought to be done. We've seen that there are also four problems with the will of the lustful man. Self-love, hatred of God, love of this world, and despair of the future life. We've seen that the reason that sinners get so agitated when the church's teaching is brought up is because their passions are so inflamed. And God's teaching is so threatening to the pleasures that they're really basically living for that they're at the point where they can scarcely help themselves. We've seen that we each need to pray fast and intercede for them. Over the long term, we've seen that the more these sins are repeated and the more perverted they are, the more the passions become inflamed and escape the rule of reason. And to the very degree that the passions have been repeatedly inflamed and perverted, to that very degree, they're all the more difficult to quiet down and get back under control. That's just another way of saying the more repeated and perverted the sins, the more tightly that sinner is held in bondage to his own sin. We've seen that the final and most serious result of the sins against purity is damnation. Let's close. What we're doing in these sermons is to look out at the world and see what the church sees. We're trying to take a more thoughtful and realistic approach to reality. And on a passion-charged topic like this, in fact, the most passion-charged topic... There's a lot of completely stupid and evil ideas flying around. But even the smallest error here has potentially huge, perhaps even eternal, consequences. Here's the bottom line. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8. The pure of heart shall see God. The pure of heart. So on the one hand, we have the pure of heart shall see God. On the other hand, we have all those who are damned are damned on account of this one vice of impurity, or at least not without it. Purity, salvation, 
impurity, damnation. It's cut and dry. We have to remain pure. We've got to preserve our own purity. We have to protect not only our innocence, but the innocence and purity of those for whom we're responsible, and especially of the children. Say the three Almerys. Remove the occasions of sin from your home. Fix your TV so it can't show impure images. Fix it so it's not pouring raw spiritual sewage into your living room and into your souls. Fix it. Say the three Hail Marys every morning and night. Say your rosary daily. Go to confession frequently. Make fervent communions. Say your three Hail Marys. Purity, salvation, impurity, damnation. It's cut and dry.